KQED. Hello and welcome to Smart Mouth, where we bring you a digest of the week's news. I'm Queena Kim, here with Dan Brecky, editor of KQED's blog, News Fix. Hey, Dan. Good morning, Queena. Good morning. And we've also got Joshua Johnson here, KQED's morning newscaster. Let's start with you. Yes, indeed. Good morning, Queena, or evening, or afternoon, or whenever you're listening to this podcast. There's no time on the There's podcast. There's no time. Oh, I forgot Hi. about that. No, I know. I, Hi. I have, at this time of day, whatever time it is, some updates on the fight over housing in the Bay Area. There were two developments, one in San Francisco, one in Oakland, that I think are worth talking about. First, the one in Oakland, the one that made a lot of headlines, was there was a group of protesters that disrupted the city council meeting, basically shut down the city council meeting before the council could vote on giving a piece of, not giving, but but dealing, selling a piece of public land to a private developer. It's a parcel on East 12th Street, right on Lake Merritt, that would be used to make a 24-story condo tower, market-rate condos. Protesters came in, said the city needs more affordable housing, um, and, and that, that the city was not doing a good enough job of dealing with that, shut down the meeting. So for now, that is on hold, although apparently that deal could still go through. So that's one part. In San Francisco, Supervisor David Campos put forth this proposal to create a 45-day moratorium on new development in the Mission District. The concern is that the land is running out for affordable housing, and very little of that housing that's going up really across San Francisco, but particularly in the Mission, is for low- and middle-income families. Most of it is market rate, which is kind of a euphemism for top dollar. So he is proposing a 45-day moratorium that could be extended up to two years if the Board of Supervisors decided to do so. The problem with that, according to opponents, is that San Francisco needs the housing. Part of the reason why housing is so expensive in San Francisco is because we don't build very much of it, and we certainly don't build it at the rate of other cities. So that's just been proposed, and it's unclear kind of where that's going to go. You can't really stop this stuff, can you? I mean, has there ever been, like, cities that have actually... I just feel like these protests happen, and then the building gets built. It just takes a lot longer and is a lot more expensive. Well, you know, we we do live in a market-based economy. There is a market for these places right now. Now, one of these places you're talking about in San Francisco is uh, a big project that's proposed, not yet cleared, for 16th and Mission. Uh, It's 345 units, 330 units, something like that. Market rate housing. Uh, If they were apartments, they would be going for 5,000 bucks a month. We know who's taking those. It's not the folks who are currently hanging out on that corner outside the Burger King and the uh, the uh, Wells Fargo, uh, which has always been Plaza. a mystery to me, that corner. So, considering all the gentrification that's going on there, that it's still so um, the people from the hood. hard. Well, I, guess, it, I mean, at the same place, you have a bunch of SROs, and so those people to go outside, that's where they go. That's the community hangout, and it may look pretty dysfunctional to us, but uh, community activists are making the argument that. Uh, that's a that's an amenity that would be removed in that neighborhood. But getting back to this question, you know, stopping down on all construction in the mission or stopping a big project in Oakland does not affect the larger equation of affordable housing. There's never been enough of that. And you would have to have some really basic change in how we, we fund and plan housing for that to happen. And of course, that's what these folks would like to see, the protesters. But you have an interesting theory on this, that uh, not only will it not work, but uh, developers will just go elsewhere? Well, that's my concern, and, and I have no evidence of what the developers' plans would be if this development uh, did not work. But, you know, the history of this country teaches us that if a developer wants a parcel of land badly enough, that all kinds of things can happen 
to make that happen. I mean, I'm from Florida where people have done some very dastardly things to get at neighborhoods. I mean, Miami's Overtown neighborhood was the hub of black culture, and developers basically decimated Overtown by building I-95 through Overtown, the eminent domain part of downtown Overtown, built a highway, decimated the community, and then redeveloped. In in situations like this, I could see developers, for example, saying, you know what? El Cerrito's right over there. San Leandro's right across the border. Castro Valley's a swell place to live. Why don't we just go over there? And so you, from the borders of your little uppity Oakland, can see what it is you're not getting. And after a while, that creates tremendous economic pressure on the city council to say, uh, maybe we should just do this in closed session and report it back out. Like, maybe we find a way to go through this. Again, I have no evidence that that's on the books, but there's no reason they couldn't do that. Yeah, it, it just sort of seems a little too binary, right? Like, I don't know. Is it is a solution to having affordable housing stopping housing construction? I don't know. Anyways. Well, you know, you don't sound convinced. All I know is that I was fortunate enough to get a market rate rent controlled apartment in San Francisco. We've heard about when I moved it. Here. And if I leave that apartment, do you know where I'm going to have to live? The 16th Street Park Station. All right. Basically. I wanted to make one other point about this, which will serve as a segue to something else. There are micro solutions that are coming into play in this housing situation. And we just had a feature on this morning by Stephanie Martin, one of our reporters, about this move in San Francisco to make it easier to build in-law apartments. And that's a way, using existing properties and housing stock, to try to expand from what you have there. And in a way, it's like, okay, we can't get the the really big solutions we need for uh, affordable housing. Uh, David Campos says we would need 5,000 units of affordable housing in the mission alone to preserve a middle class in the neighborhood. Ain't going to happen. But maybe citywide, you create some of these cheaper in-law units. But are they and cheaper? That, That's what I didn't really get. Because, like, if I were going to build... They are still subject to market rate. Yeah. True. If I were going to spend all that money building it and dealing with the city to do it properly and get it permitted, which is, like, hugely expensive, I, I don't know that I would... I, I would sort of try to get all the money I could out of it, personally. Well, there have got to be some you, limits you, on the way I'm that you... I'm glad you're not my landlord. <laughs> I know, right? We'd both be living at the 16th Street BART station, basically. C-I-L-L, my landlord. C-I-L-L? Mm-hmm. That's an Eddie Murphy joke. Oh, okay. Before my time. Not going to go there. <laughs> anyway, you were saying. What you, else we got? No, what's your subject? My subject is BART. Boy, we were on this last week, too, talking about how all the money BART needs to upgrade its infrastructure and, and, and whatnot. And yesterday, we had, and yesterday being Wednesday, May 6th, if you want a precise point in time, we had a real meltdown on the system. All it took was a 10-inch section of rail breaking off on the track between 16th Street. We were just talking about 16th Street and uh, the Civic Center. And basically, the system came to a halt. It was just bleeding trains through very, very slowly, epic overcrowding, epic delays on the um, on the system. And if you monitored social media the way I like to, uh, you know, I referred to it as Bart's horrible, terrible, no good, very bad day. It was one of my favorite kids' books. And it was actually one of Bart's favorite tweets. But um, <laughs> but they didn't like a lot of the other tweets, which are, why the hell is this going on? Is, can I say hell? You may. Why the hell is this going on? Well, isn't it going <sighs> on because we're not funding Bart? So this is sort of like my confusion in this. If I understood you correctly last time, you seemed to be griping a little that we'd have no, to pay for griping. all these no upgrades. Griping. 
And no, yet, I'm willing to pay. This is what happens if you don't pay, or what am I missing? No, uh, listen, it could be a consequence of not paying, but I think the the larger picture that's emerging behind this is even, you know, the state auditor's report last week we were talking about was saying how BART needs almost $10 billion to fund all of its capital projects. And I think the bigger picture that's emerging is, well, what if they got that $10 billion? You know, we pass some taxes and automatically they have that money. You still have a huge, huge need that pe- people just aren't really talking about very much, which is the fact the system is, no matter what you do to tweak it, it's not going to respond to the need that's, uh, that's building. Uh, remember, BART is saying that ridership could double in the next 25 years. So, so where are the visionary solutions? The, uh, the second loop. The Hyperloop, well, we talked about that last week, and maybe that will be it. But I, I think um, people have made noise for decades about maybe a second BART tube, the, uh, a southern crossing, which would be a bridge that would maybe come from Alameda or East Oakland over to the city. Maybe you could run a second BART line on that bridge. There's a historical precedent for running transit across bridges in the Bay Area. The key route used to go across the Bay Bridge. See, I just hear this and I say... How much is that going to cost, and who's going to fund this? Well, and nobody's going to want to pay for it, right? But, but you know what? To Dan's point, though, I think that the solution might end up being some kind of you know newfangled way of reviving an old idea. I mean, if you know, I know we joke about the Elon Musk hyperloop, but if there was some kind of Silicon Valley solution that would allow us to have new infrastructure, easier to maintain, teleportation, more I'm all for it. And I, I will let you try it first. But new <laughs> infrastructure, easier to maintain, not as susceptible to wear and tear, tougher against earthquakes, able to run 24 hours. I know there's somebody, somebody on the peninsula who's trying to figure out this problem, and they're just kind of waiting for their chance. If they're not, I'd be stunned. Well, here's what's happening instead, I think. We're getting, I was just talking about micro solutions in housing. We're getting micro solutions in transportation. So, so, well, Uber is a great example because Uber actually sees itself as being something that supplants, uh, first supplements and then supplants uh, mass transportation that we'll we'll all be getting into self-driving Uber cars to go wherever we want. And uh, that may be, uh, you know, a year or two away. Um, another example are the uh, tech company shuttles. I mean, more than 100,000 people are commuting out of San Francisco every day. There are ways to do it. We've got Caltrain going down to the peninsula. But we also know that there are 25 or 30, maybe even more than 1,000 uh, people uh, taking the commuter shuttles every day down to the valley. So we're getting micro-solutions. Even the, the uh, cab companies seem to have gotten the message. And, and yesterday during the BART meltdown, I even gave Uber my credit card number, but I could not quite make myself order a car. You couldn't bring yourself to I take Uber? I, why not? I, I, I yeah, knew I kind of your... need to, but... Well, why didn't you? To, for, for just to say I, I've done it. There must be a reason. All right, well, while you're thinking about it, I have a question. Do you think we're seeing the limitations of democracy? Because I feel like there probably are a lot of good visions out there, and there are probably a lot of the things you're talking about, Josh. You know, uh, I'm sure we're not the first people who have thought, like, isn't there better technology? Isn't there a grander vision? But I even look at, like, you know, this high-speed rail, which I think is an awesome idea going up and down California from because my family's in L.A. And to me, that's a no-brainer, and yet it's so hard to get through. It's hard to get the land. It's hard to, like, you know, and it's a little bit of the limitations of democracy. I imagine in a country like China, they just sort of be like, we are building this high-speed rail 
we're, we're going to well, kick no, you out of the land. And, and I'm, not, I'm not advocating for that. But I would also remember that mass transit and cars have been at loggerheads historically. You said you're from L.A. L.A. used to have streetcars that ran all over the city. And then there was a massive antitrust scheme that basically dismantled the streetcars so they could build the freeway system. And the systems for funding these projects are complicated. I mean, there are gasoline taxes that help fund transportation. And then there are state funds that come in from other sources. So maybe that's the limitation of democracy we're talking about. I just wonder if there's a visionary out there who did have a great idea, whether they would even be able to get it through. So I'm going to go on to my subject, and that is an article that was in the L.A. Times, although we at KQED actually did this story a year ago. But they've raised it again, and that's that Central Valley's growing concern is crops raised with oil field water. Now, have you guys ever seen the movie Idiocracy? Yes. yes. Yeah. And remember when they were watering everything with Gatorade, and they're just like awesome. To me, this is my, a my, little. My yard looks great because of that. Um, to me, this is a little idiocracy. I'm sure I'll get a little pushback because I know you're a science guy, but I just sort of feel like, you know, I guess the scientists will come down and say, well, this is safe. You know, uh, environmentalists, environmentalists are sort of uh, going off half cocked. But to me, this is one of those common sense things. Like you can tell me, like scientifically, there's no proof for this and whatever. But in my gut, I'm just like, is this really a good idea? You're talking about the ick factor, basically. Well, not only that, but I just sort of, I mean, it reminds me of like, remember in uh, Oklahoma with all like uh, their fracking there and. Uh, soon after, there were a lot of these earthquakes, and people were saying it's because of the fracking. Everybody's and it is like, because of the fracking. It is now, but for a long time, people were saying, well, we don't really know that. How do you know it's from the fracking? We don't have any evidence. And in your gut, you're like, well, there were really no earthquakes before, and now there are tons of earthquakes. I might not have the scientific proof for you, but— Yes, it seems foolish to be doing this, to be uh, putting something you don't really know what the effects are. And, you know, this wastewater they have to deal with is a problem. They have some kind of way of treating it to—what are they doing? They're putting crushed walnuts or yeah. something in it that's supposed to absorb part of the oil. But, you know, this stuff is leaching into the soil. Uh, nobody knows what the long-term effects of, uh, of that are. Um, and we're not even really—I mean, I guess there's a new law now or regulations where we are— going to start monitoring this water for chemicals before we were monitoring it just for like, I guess, sort of uh, using different standards because the chemicals weren't in play. So I guess at the very least, it feels like we are going full forward with this without really having all the information. And it seems like a pretty dangerous thing to fool around with our food source, our farmland, you know, the way. Well, in defense of the idea and just playing devil's advocate, there is uh, scientific evidence that nature does filter out certain pollutants certain chemicals. I mean, you know, I'm not a I'm not on the payroll or the dole of the oil industry, but a lot of people in that sector would say, look at the Deepwater Horizon spill. People thought Deepwater Horizon was going to be a cataclysm for years and years and years. And then a few years later, scientists came out and was like, oh, this is cleaner than we expected it to be at this point in time. So nature does have ways of buffering chemical effects, filtering out contaminants, even man-made contaminants. That doesn't mean that it's going to do this with these. Well, and you're right. We don't have all the data yet, but it's possible. A, I'm not really a, worried about five, nature, though. That's the whole a, thing about and, the Earth. In a five-year time horizon, which is kind of what our, our level of patience is, oh, five years, look, no problem. Here's the pushback on that. Prince William Sound, where there is also a, a big spill, the uh, uh, what the Exxon the Valdez, Valdez. Yeah. Uh, that place is still not right. And we, we experiment. We're fearless in experimenting with, uh, with, with, with the chemicals we want to use in the world. And um, 
this is just another example of that. Now, I think the flip side of this is if we wanted the water to be purer or cleaner before we irrigate with it, that costs money too for whatever the purification systems are. So these crushed walnut shells might be kind of the lesser of the evils in terms of cost and purification. If we knew what it actually cost to make the water potable for the sake of irrigation or drinking or whatever, that might make people be like, let me go to Safeway and get some walnuts. Like, it may not sound like such a good idea. Let me go to Safeway and get some fruit and vegetables that were watered with oil Ex- water. Exactly. Oil water. With, with, clean, with clean, clear, All right. hexavalent I th- water. I think it's time for the lightning round. You want to cue us up for that, Dan? Lightning round. A few stories we've been looking at may not be on everybody's radar, or they're on everybody's radar, and we think we know something more about it than you do. Um, we haven't talked about the Warriors. We have an, uh, the Golden State Don't Warriors. Save that young lady. Golden State <laughs> oh, Warriors, a legitimate, yes, again. a legitimate NBA championship contender that may be in for a big struggle in its second round playoff. Their their uh, playoff series. They're in a one to one tie with the Memphis Grizzlies. Why Grizzlies are in Memphis? I can't tell you. And also this week, uh, their all-universe point guard, Stephen Curry, Steph to his friends and everybody else, uh, was named league MVP. Cool. Joshua? I was talking holograms last week. Now I'm talking heroes. None other than that swashbuckler, Indiana Jones, a product of the Bay Area Film Studio Lucasfilm. He is coming back. The last movie was Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull in 2008. But the head of Lucasfilm, Kathleen Kennedy, told Vanity Fair, Vanity Fair they will make another Indiana Jones movie. They don't know when. They haven't written a script yet. The interesting, thing, the interesting thing about this to me is that Lucasfilm basically devalued Indiana Jones when it made its deal with Disney. Disney bought Lucasfilm in 2012 almost entirely, and they said as much, on the strength of one property, Star Wars. And that's why the first Lucasfilm movie since the merger is Star Wars. Indiana Jones was considered such a negligible property financially, comparatively. They were like, we'll, we'll get to him when we get to him. So, yay for the underdog, Indiana, Indiana Jones. Jones. Yes, indeed. With the repairs. They don't know if it's going to be Harrison Ford. Somebody uh, guessed Chris Pratt. I, I, personally, I personally think it's time for a black Indiana Jones. I was oh, that. that's a good idea. Yes, actually. and I am yeah. six foot three in very good health. I would not exactly How call myself. How do you look myself, in a fedora, dude? dude? Have you seen me? I'm, I could be rocking a fedora right now in the studio. <laughs> I'm going to bring one next week. In fact, I sort of see one now. Thank you. And just, does everything not uh, about me just not scream squash buckling? <laughs> I, I hate snakes. I absolutely hate snakes. But I will buckle my swash for a role in Indiana Jones in a second. Um, mine is more of a call out. As we all know, the state water board handed down regulations saying that cities have to cut up to 36% of their water use if they're water hogs and less so if they've been doing a good job. But in all the coverage, and this is sort of driving me crazy, so this is more of a call out to all you satirists, comedians, whoever is out there, our state obsession with grass. Like, it it was driving me crazy. Like, a lot of the pushback was, now my grass is going to die. Like, I can't cut water by 36%. My geraniums are going to wilt, not even die. It's beautiful and calming to look at all that green. But what, what I, like, there's just, I feel like there's this disconnect. Like, we might not have water to drink or to live, and we're still fixated on grass. So anybody out there, I'm looking for a satire, some sort of funny take that will explain this to me. Well, that's it today for Smart Mouth. 
Joining me today is Dan Brecky, editor of KQED's Blog News Fix, and Joshua Johnson, KQED's morning newscaster. Thanks for joining us.